Our Bibles now, if you would, to Revelation chapter 7. And this evening we're ready to start this 7th chapter, which I believe is really one of the most remarkable chapters that we have in the Bible. After all of these calamities and things that we've read about in the uh, past few messages and what we've studied, all the terrible events that have taken place, we come to this chapter and here we find uh, the unfolding of one of God's precious promises. This chapter contains a centuries-old prophecy about Israel and about how that God still has a plan and purpose for his chosen nation. There are many people today that don't believe that Israel has any significance any longer, that God has finished working with Israel, that when Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah in his first advent, they believed that God shut off these people, he shut them out, and Israel is no longer an important nation to the Lord, and it's no longer the Lord's people. And that's one of the teachings that you have in covenant theology, and it's one of the reasons why that uh, even though I agree with them on many, many things, I just have to part company right here because uh, I believe that the Bible definitely teaches that God still has a plan for Israel. Now, they believe that there's no more physical Israel, even though there's a nation called Israel today, that they're really not God's people. And they equate spiritual Israel with the church. And so they say that Israel and the church are the same thing. And that's one of the reasons why, when you read different interpretations of the book of Revelation, you find people that have a, um, an allegorical approach to it. Uh, They don't believe that the things that we read here are literal. Well, I truly do believe that we ought to take the Word of God in the natural sense of its reading. Unless the Bible tells us otherwise, these are literal things. And I don't believe that God has cast Israel aside. And we're going to go into that a little bit more as we go through the message tonight. So let's look in the Scripture. And uh, we're looking in Revelation chapter 7. If you stand with me as we read God's Word. Revelation chapter 7, beginning at verse number 1. After these things... I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. Let me give you just a little bit of preview right here of what comes in chapter 8. There's going to be a lot of hurt to the earth, a lot of things going on with trees and many different things, the sea and so forth that we'll see in chapter 8. But here he says, uh, God tells them to stop. Don't hurt the earth right now until he seals these people in their foreheads. Verse number 4, And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed twelve thousand. The tribe of Gad were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Aser were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Nathalem were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Manassas were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Zabulon were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed twelve thousand. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we just thank you for your word that we get to talk about tonight and wonderful truths that we find here. And Lord, we just pray you'd open up the scriptures and our understanding tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Chapter number 7 begins after these things. And that's a reference to all of these terrible calamities where God is unleashing his fury that we read about in chapter number 6. This is the, after the opening of those first six seals, and Jesus is unfolding the scroll. He's rolling out the title deed to the earth that tells how he will reclaim the earth as his own. And on each of these, uh, or under each of these seals, as we've discussed, there are terrible times of judgment. And we've talked about the opening of those six seals. That's the tribulation period. But what we're going to find is that the worst of the tribulation is still to come. There's another period that's called the great tribulation. Uh, what we've been speaking about so far covers the first three and a half years of tribulation. Uh, the first six seals are opened in those three and a half years. But under the seventh seal, uh, things get much, much worse. And that time period is referred to as the great tribulation. So chapter 7 begins after the opening of those six seals. And there's an interlude here in chapter number 7 before we reach chapter number 8 and the opening of the seventh seal. And this is what we call a a parenthetical section of the book of Revelation. And that's because the narrative is really not advanced here. But rather, we have a stop in the action. And then before the opening of that seventh seal, the word of God tells her here some things that will go on before that seventh seal is opened. And then it explains some things about the witnesses that will... uh, preach God's word under the opening of that seventh seal. In the seventh chapter, we have a vision of the tribulation saints and the work that's going on uh, through that last half of the tribulation. Now, what we find here then are actually two visions of two different groups of people. During the tribulation, there will be a vast number of people that will be saved. Most of them will die They'll suffer terrible deaths of persecution. But there's another group of God's people that will be saved during that time. And these will be sealed. And they're going to live throughout the tribulation period. And then they'll go into the millennial kingdom of Christ not having died. Now tonight we're going to talk about the first of those two groups. And that's the preserved group, the ones that are sealed. And verses 1 through 8 describe this very special people of God. God chooses them out as witnesses during dark days of calamity and persecution. I want to begin the discussion tonight uh, by talking, first of all, about the strength of the angels. And in verse number 1 it says, And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Now verse number 1 is what we can call the eye of the storm. I don't know how many have ever been through a hurricane. I've never actually been through one, but I have seen the devastating effects of one. In 1992, we were in Florida just after Hurricane Andrew came through, and we were in the town of Homestead, Florida. And if you, I don't know, maybe you don't remember this, but Homestead, Florida was completely destroyed by the hurricane. There were splintered houses and trees that were just strewn everywhere. Well, there's a very peculiar phenomenon about a, a hurricane, and it's a, it's a mass of swirling winds around the center, and these winds reach speeds of over 100 miles an hour. The first wave of the wind comes by, and then there's this eerie calm that takes place. 
That's when you're in the eye of the storm. Everything quiets down. But there's this real sense or this real feeling that something is about to happen. Something else is coming. And indeed, something does come because when that, that eye of the storm passes over, then the second wave comes. Now, the first wave, you think, well, nothing could get worse than this. Then you have that calm, that eerie calm. But then that second wave comes through and the destruction is terrible. And this is kind of what we see right here in this seventh chapter. There's a break. There's an interlude. After all these terrible things that are happening, there's an eerie calm. As God stops everything and he tells the angels, stop, don't do any more to the earth, there's work to be done. And so here we find four angels that bring an unprecedented calm to the earth. God stops it all. Uh, Usually when we think about angels, we get a picture in our mind of just sweet innocence. Maybe we get a picture of that little angel Cupid and how innocent that he looks. Or we think about... uh, Angels dressed in white with two wings and a halo over their head and they appear as beautiful women. Or we have the the picture in our mind of the Christmas angels and uh, all the rejoicing, the singing that goes on welcoming the birth of Christ. Well, much of the view that we have of angels, quite a bit of it, is actually a false view. One of the things that we do know about angels from the Word of God is that they are associated with judgment. I want to talk about that first, their association with judgment. Throughout the book of Revelation, we see angels time and time again as they're associated with judgment. They're going uh, about God's business of judgment. And this is not a new work to them. I mean, if you go back in the Old Testament times and you look at biblical history, you find that angels have often been associated with God's judgment. If you go back to the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, there were angels that preceded the judgment of God upon that city. If you think about uh, King David, when he numbered the people of Israel, God sent an angel that brought judgment against Israel. And if you remember, God had to stay the hand of that angel before he destroyed the entire city of Jerusalem. In Hezekiah's time, there was an angel that came. The Syrians were out there camped against Israel. And on one night, there was an angel that went out and killed 185,000 Assyrians. Angels are associated with God's judgment. Now, the Bible does teach that they're ministering spirits. And we think about how they minister to God's people. And we think about the protection that they give us. They're capable of great things in the favor of God's people as they minister to us. But they're also angels of judgment. Now, here we find the power of angels as they control the natural forces upon the earth. In verse number 1, we see here that the atmosphere is controlled. Four angels are stationed at the four corners of the earth, and they hold back the winds from blowing. Now, some people will look at that, and they say, well, the Bible is foolish. How can you believe the Bible? Here it talks about the four corners of the earth. And so the Bible must be perpetuating a a, a square earth or a flat earth. The Bible can't be true. Well, all you need to do is go back and read a little bit more in the Old Testament. And you go back 700 years in the time of Isaiah. And Isaiah said, before Copernicus was ever born or anybody else, Isaiah said, the Lord sits upon the circle of the earth. Now, certainly God knows and the Bible knows that the earth was round. So what does he mean when he talks about four angels at the four corners of the earth? What he's referring to are the points on a compass, north, south, east, and west. There are four different directions, and so the angels stop all the winds from blowing from all different directions. 
Now, that's also a problem for many people because the winds of the earth are a product of the earth's rotation and the sun's gravitational pull. That's what causes the wind. And so, in order to stop the winds, something has to be done with the natural cycles of the earth. As we all know, the the winds control the hydrological cycles of the earth. If you stop the winds, you stop rain. Some of you might be happy about that if there was never any more rain. That's what happens if you stop the wind. And so people have a problem with that. But I want to remind you once again, as we talked about last week, that God is in control of all natural forces. We spoke about that long day in the book of Joshua, and people have trouble with that because that means that uh, God must have stopped the rotation of the earth, and they think, well, there are incalculable problems that will come with that if the earth was to stop rotating. But it doesn't matter. God controls all of those things. And, and not only controlling them, but he can reverse all the effects of it if he wants to. And this is what we see God doing here. He stops everything upon the earth. Everything is dead, quiet, and still. Now, after seeing all the things that have happened under the opening of those six seals, I doubt that there's going to be any scientist who, who doesn't realize that this is by the power of God. Now, for a time... They were looking at this, and they thought that these, well, these were just natural happenings. I mean, there's nobody actually controlling it. But by the time that sixth seal is open, they're bound to know that God is the one who does this. Now, let's go on here, and we see why there is a lull. Why is there a calm in the storm? Well, verses 2 and 3 tell us why. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. So what's the reason for the law? Well, here we have it. Point number two is the sealing of the saints. Now, chapter 6 ends with a question, Who shall be able to stand? When everybody sees all of these things that happen, when they see God's wrath poured out, a question is asked, Who is able to stand? Well, chapter 7 gives us the answer to that question. These people in chapter 6, they ask, it, uh, ask the question if it's, it's, as if it's impossible. Nobody can stand during, during such times. But God shows us who will stand. There's a group who will stand, and these are God's chosen witnesses. I'm not going to go through this and read this part again, but verses 4 through 8 tell us that the ones who stand are 144,000 special chosen out people from the nation of Israel. And on these people, God places his seal. And so if you want to know why the action stops, it's for the very same reason that the world is in existence today. It's why we still have governments today. It's why that civilization still exists. It's why the world continues to go on. It's because God still has chosen ones in the world. Now, if you want a demonstration of that, all that you need to do is go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 9. And there in the context of this great and terrible day of the Lord, with the destruction of the entire universe that's going around, there is a verse there that says that God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if you read that second chapter and read second peters i talked a little bit about it last week the context there is the terrible day of the lord and even though many people take the verse out of its context it's very evident that god is speaking about his own elect god keeps the world going he hasn't destroyed it all 
because of his elect chosen ones. Now you take them out of the world, remove all of the people that God will save, and this world will come to a a mighty, thundering, frightful, fiery end. God will stop it all. So that's what God is doing with the law. He's preserving his chosen ones. So he tells the angels, stop the carnage, stop everything. I'm going to seal my people so they can't be hurt. Now, what is that seal? What's it all about? Well, first of all, it's the sign of God's ownership. The scripture tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. God puts a seal on every one of his children. In the book of Ephesians chapter 1, the scripture tells us that all who trust in the Lord receive the seal of the Holy Spirit. It says there, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So these special witnesses of God are sealed by the Holy Spirit just as we're sealed. But we see here there's an added dimension to this because not only are they sealed with the spirit of promise like we are when we're saved, but they're sealed in a different way. God denotes these people as his special people. There's a visible sign that's placed upon them. When we get into chapter 14, we'll see that these ones that are sealed will enter into the millennial kingdom because they have the mark of God. Well, what is the seal? I mean, what is the physical seal that God puts on? Well, It's interesting that Satan, who's the arch-counterfeiter of God, and the Antichrist have a seal of their own. Most of you probably heard about it, 666. We'll study about that a little bit later on. But that's the seal of the Antichrist as he mimics, as he counterfeits the things of God. Well, God is going to have his own seal. I personally don't really think that God's going to put a number on us. I I think he's a little bit more close to us than just stamping us with a number. Uh, W.A. Criswell suggests that this could be the glowing glory of God that's on every person who is a believer in this time. Now, he, he believes that it might be just like Moses. When he came down from Mount Sinai after getting the law of God, being in the presence of God, the glory of God was upon him, and his face shone, the Bible said, so people couldn't even stand to look on him. Now, maybe that's what God does. I don't know if that's what it is, but there's going to be some kind of a visible mark upon these people, and you'll be able to tell these are the people of God. Now, their souls are sealed, but they have another special seal as well. Now, I will say that this to to all of us here tonight that are saved. We've been sealed by God, and the evidence of it ought to be visible outwardly. People ought to be able to see that you're a child of God. By the way that you act, your attitude, the smile that's on your face, the hope that you have in your heart, your speech, your actions, that ought to say something about you as being a child of God. You stand out in a very wicked and perverse generation. So it's God's seal of ownership. Now, we also see that it's the security of God's protection. And this is why everything stops. These chosen ones have to be sealed because when this seventh seal is opened in chapter 8, there are terrible times that are coming. Calamity is going to be upon the world. And God wants to be sure that these people are not caught in that destruction. And then also the Antichrist will step up his persecution in that time and he'll target specifically these people who are God's people. 
I can't even imagine how frustrated that the Antichrist will be. I mean, here he goes about all this trouble of consolidating his power over all the earth. Everyone bows down to him. And here are these 144,000 witnesses that he can't do anything with. He can't hurt them. God's protecting them. Now, the Antichrist destroys everything godly. He gets rid of everything that's righteous. He destroys everything that he can. But he has no power at all against these 144,000 witnesses. God will protect them as they go about the business of winning souls to Christ, turning hearts to Christ. The Antichrist won't be able to do a thing about it. They're under God's hand of protection. They're preserved. And they will be preserved right down to the very last one of them until they go right on into the millennial kingdom. Now, God offers them physical and spiritual protection. And that's a wonderful thing. Now, we today, of course, we have, we have the uh, spiritual protection of God. If you're a child of God, Satan can never get your soul. He can't hurt you. But we don't have 100% physical protection. And we know that. But we don't have to worry because the Word of God tells us that the body they can kill, but God's going to raise the body. He'll raise it incorruptible and be made just like his glorious body. So the action stops while the saints are sealed. Now let's spend a few minutes talking about who they are. Number three is the sum of Israel. Verses 4 through 8 tell us who these people are. But even though the Bible is so clear about this, there is much dispute about who they really are. The Bible, I think, is very clear about it. These are from the 12 tribes of Israel. These are 12,000 that come from 12 tribes. And you add all that up and you get 144,000 people. But you know, if you go ask a Seventh-day Adventist who these are, well, he'll tell you that they're among their people. They're Seventh-day Adventists, and they're people who keep the Sabbath day, make, make sure that the Sabbath day is holy and, and worship on Saturdays. You know, some people are very confused about Seventh-day Adventists. I don't talk too much about them, but uh, some people think, well, Seventh-day Adventists, they're just another branch of Christianity. They're not another branch of Christianity. They have a purely work salvation. They don't believe that the Bible alone is the authority of God. They have someone else that they believe that they can take that authority, Ellen G. White, as much as they do God's Word. So they're not Christians. They're mixed up on a lot of things. If you go and ask a Jehovah Witness, who are these people? And they'll tell you that there are 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses. Now, the Jehovah Witnesses, when they first got their start back in the 19th century, they were convinced that there were only going to be 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses saved. So they went about witnessing and getting those 144,000. They said, when that number is complete, then the world will end. It'll all be over. Nobody else will be saved. Well, the thing is, they reached 144,000, and they've reached a whole lot more since then. There are millions of Jehovah Witnesses today, and the world didn't end. So what did they do? Well, they changed their theology a little bit. And now they say that these 144,000 are special Jehovah Witnesses. They're a called-out elite group of Jehovah Witnesses. Now, I've never been in Jehovah Witness Kingdom Hall. I've never been in one. But, you know, when they, when they observe the Lord's Supper, I mean, they do some things like we do. When they observe the Lord's Supper, did you know that nobody takes the Lord's Supper? You know why? Because they're not sure which one of them will be, will be in that 144,000. And only the 144,000 are qualified to take of the Lord's Supper. So they're all sitting there looking at each other, and they don't know who's in that 144,000, so nobody takes it. 
So it all sits there. Nobody, nobody touches it. And then if you wonder why that Jehovah Witnesses are, are just out there knocking on doors and beating on doors and trying to get people uh, to come to the Kingdom Hall and become Jehovah Witnesses, it's because they believe that those who are able to keep winning more and more Jehovah Witnesses and the most faithful of them will be in that 144,000. So when they're out there, that's their effort. That's their that's their work to try to get included in this 144,000 people. And so that's what makes them very zealous door knockers. Well, when one of them comes knocking on your door, here's a good question you can ask them. You know, they're trying to get into that 144,000. So you just ask them, which tribe are you from? They're not going to be able to tell you. They don't have a tribe. They don't have anything to do with the 144,000. Then you have another group that's called the Worldwide Church of God. And they believe that the 144,000 are the lost tribes of Israel who they identify as white Anglo-Saxon Americans. Those are the 144,000. Well, who are they? Well, if you come at the Bible without any predispositions and just read the Bible just like it says, the Bible says very clearly who they are. They're Jews from the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, let me point out three important things about them, and then we'll be through tonight. First of all, God knows the definite number. There's 144,000 of them. There's not 139,000. There's not 44,000. There are 144,000. As I was studying this, I, I came across a peculiar statement that someone made that seemed to me to be a little bit odd and quite ridiculous, in fact, because this person said that these are those that God saw would be faithful to them, to, to him. He saw that there were these that would be faithful to him, and so he chose them to be the 144,000. And I thought that was a little bit odd because it appears to me that God has chosen them in order that they would be faithful. God's the one who does the choosing. And his purpose in choosing them is that he has this definite number of 144,000 witnesses. There are no more and there are no less. Now, if God hadn't predetermined that number, it would have come up with something different, something less or something more. It can't be a coincidence that there's 12,000 that comes specifically, particularly from each tribe. And if we look at it, we say, well, why does it have to work this way? Why aren't there 11,000 that come from Judah and 13,000 that come from Benjamin? Why isn't there some other number? Why isn't there a different combination of numbers from the tribes that add up to this? Well, it doesn't because God knows the exact number. He chooses them all. So God knows exactly who they are. He predetermined that before things ever got started, what the exact number will be. Now, he had that information because he determined determined that it would be so. There is a definite number of these that have been chosen. And you know that's been true all the way back to the very beginning Since God started it all, God has had his elect from all the ages. And when all of God's elect number is filled up, then will come the end. That's what it tells us in 2 Peter. When all of that's done, then comes the end. Now, if you try to change that and you try to say, well, no, that's not the way it is. There is no elect number. I mean, God doesn't know who these are. You're just going to mess up Scripture. You're going to come to Scripture after Scripture in the Bible that really doesn't make sense. You couldn't have a plainer place where this doctrine is talked in right here that God has an elect that he chooses out. He knows who they are. He knows when they will come because he designed it specifically to be that way. So this 144,000 in that particular time 
is just a microcosm of all the elect of all the ages that God has chosen. And so you can't see this doctrine any clearer than looking at these 144,000. God calls them out and he seals them. Well, there's something else that we learn as well. We also learn that God keeps account of the tribes. Now, let's narrow this back down to Israel again. This is a subset of God's entire elect, and it's comprised of 12 tribes of Israel. Now, just to show you that this is truly Israel, let's think for just a moment about the number 12. How often is the number 12 associated with Israel in the Scriptures? Well, first of all, you know there are 12 tribes of Israel. That's the obvious one. Uh, These are the sons of Jacob, and those are the ones among whom all the land of Canaan was divided between 12 tribes. When the tabernacle was built, 12 was a very prominent number. On the table of showbread, there were 12 loaves of bread. And those 12 loaves each represented one of the tribes of Israel. On the high priest's garment, there was a breastplate. And there were 12 stones that were on the breastplate. And each of those stones had inscribed one of the names of of each of the tribes of Israel. 12 stones. Jesus said that there would be, or he chose out 12 apostles. And those apostles were all Jews. And Jesus said the 12 apostles will sit on 12 thrones and they'll judge the 12 tribes of Israel. As we study through Revelation, we come to the new Jerusalem. And there we find in the city of God, there are 12 gates. And on each of those 12 gates is the name of one of the tribes of Israel. The city has 12 foundations. And inscribed in those foundations are the names of one of the 12 apostles. And again, they're all Jews. So there's no escaping this. The number 12 is associated with Israel. And so these 144,000, they can't be anybody else. They have to be the Jewish people, just as the Bible says. Now that raises then a problem of identification. And that's because in AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, and with it all of the genealogical records. Today, if you go to Israel and you ask a Jew what tribe they're from, they can't tell you. And that's because they don't have the record. Now, there's some of them that will claim to be from a particular tribe, but they have no positive proof of it because all those records have been destroyed. And even before A.D. 70, remember how Israel was split in two and the northern kingdom became Israel, the southern kingdom became Judah. And those ten tribes that were in the north very quickly were taken into captivity. They, were, they intermarried with the Syrians and the identity of the Jewish people was lost. And that's why in those ten northern tribes in the area where they lived, uh, Samaria and in Galilee, there were many of them that really didn't have any idea what their heritage was. And so how how is anybody going to know who these are? Well, God keeps an accounting of his people. We, We refer to it many times as the lost tribes of Israel. There are no lost tribes of Israel. God knows where they are. You may not know where they are, and I don't know where they are, but God definitely knows where they are. And that's because he's chosen his people out from among those tribes, and when the time comes, he'll reveal who they are. So here what you see what what God's doing, he's preserving and protecting Israel. And just to show you how, how much so this is, if you think about the ancient cultures today, go ask somebody, where could I find a Babylonian? You can't find any Babylonians. Go ask somebody, you know, well, where are the Hittites? There aren't any Hittites, are there? Anybody know a Hittite? Where are the Jebusites? Where are the Moabites? Where are the Amorites? Where are the Perizzites? Not Parasites, but Perizzites. 
can find plenty of parasites. Where are all those people? Well, no, nobody knows where they are. Those ancient cultures aren't around anymore. But go ask somebody where the Jews are. And where do you find them? You find them in every nation of the world. And that's because God has protected those people. He's preserving them. He has a purpose for them. He has a purpose for the entire, for the entire nation of Israel. Now, I, I'd like to see some covenant theo- theologian explain that. Why, with all these ancient cultures that have disappeared, why are there still Jews after all these years? I'd like to ask an atheistic anthropologist about that. Why are there still Jews? And the only explanation you can come up with is God keeps account of his people. He knows exactly where they are. He has a plan and a purpose for them, and he'll call them out at the appropriate time. Another thing that we notice about the land of Israel itself, did you know that uh, Israel was given, the land of Israel was given to God's people 3,500 years ago. And there has never been any people that's been able to hold on that, to that land in peace. It, they can't do it. And that's because it belongs to God's people. God gave them the borders of that country. And it's theirs by divine fiat. And it's going to be returned to them in total. Now, my last point then really ought to be outstandingly evident to all of us, all of us, and that is that God is not through with Israel. 144,000 are called out and they're sealed during the end times. These are the ones who become God's witnesses and they go all throughout the world to reach the world for Christ. In the book of Romans, uh, Paul said that Israel's rejection of Christ would continue until the times of the Gentiles come in. Now, what that means is we're, we're, there's not going to be any great revival among Jewish people. And the Jews still today remain some of the hardest people that there, that there are to reach with the gospel. Few Jews are saved. And the Bible has predicted that. It said until the times of the Gentiles come in, then Israel will stand in rejection of Christ. Well, the times of the Gentiles will end when the church age ends. That's when Jesus comes back and he raptures the church and all living believers uh, out of this world. Many, many people are going to be saved after that. These 144,000 Jews, after the times of the Gentiles, will be raised up and there'll be witnesses all over the world to the ends of the world. And so there'll be many more Jews saved than that 144,000. There'll be lots of Gentiles saved. And we're going to talk about the Gentiles next week when we get to that. But these 144,000... They become the witnesses during the tribulation. They'll be protected by God until God brings in the very last of all of his elect. And so once again, when we get to, when that time comes, just like the apostles were all Jews and they preached the gospel of Christ, once again, the Jews will become the preachers of the gospel. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world, for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. And then he says in verse 31, And he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. Did you know there are some people who preach, and uh, many of our good Baptist folks preach this. We disagree with them on this. But they say that the gospel must reach the entire world before Jesus comes back. You know, I don't think that's true. And the reason I don't think it's true is because I think that Jesus could come back at any moment. The whole world hasn't been reached with the gospel. That's evident to us. But Jesus could come back at any moment. 
So what was Jesus talking about when he says that the gospel of of the kingdom would preach in all the world? Well, he's talking about these 144,000. And then when the 144,000 have reached all the people, all the nations of the world, and and God has called out his people from among all the nations of the world, that's when the end comes. When God has gathered them all in, that's when the end comes. And God's going to preserve those 144,000 until that happens. Now, here's your final thought for tonight. No one can stop the gospel but God. Now, think about that. Governments have tried to stop it. Our government right here in the United States tries to legislate against the gospel of Christ. The Antichrist is going to do everything in his power to stop it. Satan has been trying to stop it since the dawn of creation, and he can't stop it. No one can stop the gospel but God. And friends, one day, God's going to stop the gospel. One of these days, the last sermon's going to be preached. The last witness will be out there. The last testimony given. The last prayer will be prayed. The last invitation given. And then it's over. God stops the gospel. Now, the gospel being preached by the 144,000 will yield the results that we read in verse number 9 of this chapter. After this, I beheld... And lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. When the last one of those are brought in, in verse number 9, then God stops the gospel. Now what we need to do is to believe in Christ now before God stops the gospel. Make sure we tell somebody before he does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the study we've had tonight. Lord, your promises are true. Your word is true. You preserve your people. You're preserving Israel. We firmly believe that they're your people. And I I believe that we need to be very careful about how we go about our handling and our affairs as we work with Israel. But Lord, I just pray that you speak to your people tonight. Help us to have the zeal, the desire to see people saved. And, Lord, we just pray that we'll have an opportunity to see friends and loved ones come to know you before the gospel is stopped. That day is coming. We want to warn people of it. Bless in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.